the great fundamental issue now before our people can be speaking to It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. You haven't heard the other side to have heard the right take. How's it going, everybody? Welcome, welcome. This is episode number 96 here of the right take. I'm Eric Lendrum here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff, and we've got a lot in this episode for you guys. A different take, a different direction for this particular episode. This is actually going to be an episode mostly from the main topic at least, full of white pills, which is very, very rare. We're going to give you some good news that should ultimately give you hope for the future going forward. Again, uh, we're still up against incredible odds in the culture war and the fight to save this country, but some very surprisingly good developments from the people we would least expect it from. But before we do that, we are going to have a bit of an election uh, recap bonanza here on the right take. There were a few elections that happened that I do want to go over real quick here uh, because, of course, a lot has happened since we last spoke to you guys. On April the 4th, Tuesday, which was, of course, the day of President Trump's arraignment in New York City, while the eyes of the nation and the world were on that court in Manhattan, there were two major elections in the United States that same evening. 
The most important one, of course, as everybody can agree, was in the state of Wisconsin, arguably the state that both candidates have to win in order to win in 2024. The race for the Supreme Court seat. Again, in Wisconsin, the uh, judges of their the seven-member Supreme Court are elected in statewide elections that are held every two years, I believe. And this was considered a very important one because the state Supreme Court of Wisconsin prior to this election was a narrow 4-3 conservative majority. Uh, conservative Justice Patience Rogensack uh, decided to retire, so the race was to fill her seat, and she was a conservative. So you had the leftist candidate, Janet Protasiewicz, Protasiewicz, not sure how you pronounce it, but whatever, um, who was a uh, former Milwaukee County prosecutor, I believe, uh, running up against a former justice of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, conservative Daniel Kelly. And a lot of sides were pouring money into this one. This actually was the most expensive judicial race in modern history. I think over $66 million was spent on this race by the time it was over. And this was this was just downright depressing. I knew she I knew he was gonna lose. I knew Daniel K was gonna lose. I did not think it would be by this much. She beat him by an eleven point margin, folks. One million twenty-one thousand votes to his. 818,000. She crushed him by over 200,000 votes. That is the biggest Democrat victory in the state of Wisconsin in recent memory. And of course, this flips that state Supreme Court from conservative to liberal, which means now, of course, this court is going to just run roughshod over everything we've been trying to do in that state. They're going to guarantee the legal right, quote unquote, to kill unborn babies. They're going to codify all the shady COVID era election practices like drop boxes and ballot drop boxes and private funding of elections and stuff like that. And I think just as important, they're going to overturn redistricting efforts by the Republican majority legislature there at both the state and congressional level, which could really hurt us in the House elections, House representatives elections in 2024. In short, it seems all but guaranteed that this will basically screw over Wisconsin ahead of 2024, making it join the other Rust Belt states of Michigan and Pennsylvania, which I think we can both agree, Jacob, are just gone, gone after the 2022 results, especially the governor's races where both governors, their uh, Democrats won by double digits. Um, and this now puts an yeah. increase. Oh, go ahead. And that's something I want to point out that a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads over as to why we're losing the Rust Belt. We haven't really won many hearts and minds over since Trump's election in 2016. So all we've done really is shift populations. A lot of conservatives in those states have moved to red states. Mm, they haven't really convinced anyone else to become conservative. They've just shifted their votes to red states. And as a result, they've left a vacuum that has kept those states blue. Oh, that's depressing. That's depressing. Because, again, as we've talked about in our you know coverage of the, the final results of the 2022 midterms, Wisconsin was one of a handful of highlights for the GOP. Yes, we lost the governor's race narrowly and I think suspiciously, but Ron Johnson was reelected to a third term. We flipped one seat in the House of Representatives. We flipped three seats in the state assembly and flipped one seat in the state Senate. Uh, in the case of the state Senate, that gives them a supermajority in that chamber. And in the state House, there are now two seats shy of a supermajority there. So by all accounts, Wisconsin saw a red wave just a few months ago in November. So for it to turn around and now go this poorly, I mean, again, Daniel Kelly was outspent. There was just no attention to this race until it was too late. I will say this much. I don't know why President Trump didn't go and at least give one rally in Wisconsin for Kelly. That surely would have boosted his chances. Not saying it would have carried him over the finish line, but it would have made it a little more competitive. The Democrats just went all in on this one. The left went all in and the the right was just absolutely the RNC. No, no one anywhere was anywhere to be seen. So that I, does this basically, I guess this is the question for you, Jacob, does this guarantee 
another Democrat victory in Wisconsin next year. Because uh, we've talked about the math on this show, the electoral math. Even if Trump you know, comes along and flips Georgia and Arizona, which is possible, if he doesn't flip Wisconsin, it's over. He falls below 270 no matter what. What do you think, Jacob? So to answer that, I'd have to go back and look at what the Senate has done, the Wisconsin Senate has done as far as fixing the issue of the nursing homes. If you yes. remember the reason that that was the main reason why Trump, quote unquote, lost Wisconsin was because of the nursing home fraud. Um, there's a special election commission in Wisconsin. They go around and deliver ballots to nursing homes in case of an emergency. If we have another national emergency similar to COVID, then, of course, that's going to be a huge issue. I think Trump wins Wisconsin if he's the nominee in 2024. Uh, I'd even with this is kind of a similar situation to Kansas when you had yes. abortion on the ballot, they rallied the pro-choice voters. They got apolitical people who believe that Republicans want to criminalize miscarriage to show up to the polls and vote. And a lot of people are claiming that Republicans, in fact, the Wall Street Journal did a piece on this after the Wisconsin election saying that Republicans should have enacted pro-choice legislation to avoid this outcome as if enacting pro-choice legislation as Republicans is going to somehow save them. I mean, all the pro-life people are then going to stay yeah, home turn the base and off. not yeah. vote Republican. Yeah. So the idea amongst the, the Republican elites is that the Republican Party needs to run away from abortion. They need to forget the issue, just abandon it completely. The problem, though, is it's not that people are turning pro-choice. It's that people don't realize that choice is on the ballot. The Republicans aren't showing up to fight on the issue of abortion. And as no. long as they refuse to show up to fight, they're going to continue to lose. The answer isn't to become pro-choice themselves. Because, again, why would any pro-choice voter want to vote for a Republican when they can have the real thing? They can vote for the real so thing. So exactly. that's obviously a lose. It's, it's a lose-lose situation with Republicans taking the current stance on abortion, which is to ignore the issue. They have to go to the mat. They have to take on the pro-choice crowd head on. They have to win the ideological battle or they're going to lose elections. Yeah, just be unapologetic about your pro-life stance. I think, and we talked about this uh, not the last time, but one of the previous times we had Tom on because Tom Papper from uh, Valiant News, he is from Kansas, of course, and he talked about it, and we he pointed out, I think, that the pro-life measure or a pro-life measure that was defeated in Kansas in the primary in 2022, there was a significant overvote there. I think like 200,000 more people voted on that issue, whether afford or against it. Just overall, how many people cast about mm -hmm. on that? Over 200,000 more than those who voted in the governor's race, the, the primaries and whatnot. So all you had, and we saw this in other abortion referendums on the ballot later in like Kentucky and, and Montana, where there was just an overvote. People came out purely to vote on abortion and then go home. They didn't vote down ballot, which obviously does not help the Democrats. If, if they just run purely single issue voters who come out and vote for abortion and then go home, that's not a boost to them electorally. That's just, okay, you stopped this pro-life ballot for another two years. So yeah, I, I do like to think, again, I'm an optimist. I like handing out white pills when I can. Wisconsin, of those three Rust Belt states, Wisconsin is still the most winnable. Again, Gretchen Whitmer got reelected by 10 points in Michigan. Uh, Josh Shapiro got elected by 15 points in Pennsylvania. Shoot me. Um, but whereas Wisconsin was, was very, very close. And a friend of mine pointed out this, this out to me the other day. As we talked about in our big six-part investigative series on uh, voter fraud in 2020, Jacob and I did come to the consensus together that Wisconsin is a state that was definitely stolen from Trump via voter fraud along with Georgia. But even – you got to remember, Trump was outspent dramatically by outside groups in the Democrat Party altogether, I think three to one outspent. And of course, they had the largest, most well-funded, most well-organized voter fraud ballot harvesting scheme in modern history. Zuckerberg and Soros and all these people – and even with all that said, Trump's and the GOP had no ballot harvesting whatsoever. 
Trump only barely lost. He, quote unquote, lost Wisconsin to Biden by just under 21,000 votes. So certainly if the GOP got its act together and started doing ballot harvesting of their own and, yeah, fix the, the nursing home problem, they could totally win Wisconsin. And then, yeah, if you just flip Georgia and Arizona, uh, assuming Trump holds Ohio, Iowa, Florida, North Carolina, boom, that puts him at 272 right there. And he's president again. So I like to think there is still hope. But we will wait and see. Not a great sign. Uh, all of their elections this year, again, the, the governor's races in uh, Louisiana and Kentucky, which are going to be interesting to keep an eye on. Not as important in terms of, you know, the implications for 2024 as this race was. And one other election Tuesday night we just had to talk about. The Chicago mayor's race, guys. Oh, this was, I, I was wrong on this one. I privately predicted that. Um, uh, so the, the two candidates, of course, it went to a runoff because that's how their system works. Lori Lightfoot was defeated. Incumbent Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost the primary, came in a pretty humiliating distant third place versus a former teacher and a Cook County commissioner named Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis, a businessman and former CEO of Chicago Public Schools way back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I believed Vallis would win. Vallis, uh, friends of mine in the Chicago area said it seemed like Vallis was going to win narrowly. Nope. He lost. Brandon Johnson, this radical far-left pro-BLM candidate, narrowly beat Vallis by about 4%. Johnson, who, of course, you know, again, pro-Black Lives Matter, previously was very vocally in support of defund the police. He spent most of the runoff campaign trying to walk that back while still promising to be a hardcore progressive who's going to, you know, you know, reform the police, whatever. You know, uh, it's obvious what he means by that. He also plans to greatly expand Chicago's sanctuary city status and increase social welfare, welfare programs for illegal aliens. And of course, as a former teacher, he was endorsed by the American Federation of Teachers, you know, and Randy Weingarten, that delightful character who runs that that mafia, that mob outfit that is the AFT. So well, Vallis, he racked up the coalitions that he needed. He first yep. of all, he's black, so yes. he racked up the black vote. And Vallis is white. He's for the teachers' union, so he racked up the the union vote or at least the public sector union vote. And he supports Chicago becoming a sanctuary city. So he racked up most of the Hispanic vote. So he's got, that's, that's his coalition that you need to win Chicago right there. Exactly. Vallis, of course, ran as a much more moderate guy. He was endorsed as, you know, Johnson was endorsed by the American Federation of Teachers. Vallis was endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. He vowed to crack down on a crime. And when people say like, see like, oh, he was with Chicago Public Schools. Oh, he's one of them. No, actually, again, he was with them way back in the late 90s, and early 2000s. He's actually had a reputation for being uh, very supportive of private, the privatization of education and increased use of charter schools. He's been seen almost as kind of like a kind of what Mitt Romney did with Bain Capital, what he like he advertised what he used to do when he was running for president in 2012. I would go in and save failing companies. Vallis did that for like public school districts. He headed the Chicago Public School District, uh, Philadelphia's Public School District. Uh, the recovery school district in Louisiana, the public school district in Bridgeport, Connecticut, all like back to back to back. He basically was, you know, a, a, a janitor on a wide scale who would go in and clean up these public school districts and by all accounts did a pretty good job at it. So like, yeah, I'll reform the schools, which obviously made the teachers unions an enemy out of him. And he, yeah, he tried to run as a moderate and it didn't work. He was also criticized for being much uh, softer on abortion. He isn't explicitly pro-life, but he's not as crazy pro-abortion as other Democrats are, which is just, th there seem to be quite a few surprisingly pro-life Democrats in Illinois of all places who, of course, usually get beaten out by progressives in the end of the day. End of the day. Um, this basically, to me, Jacob, unfolded as the worst alternative of what could have happened in the New York mayor's race in 2021, because if you remember that one, uh, Eric Adams ultimately did win that election. You know, again, he was a former uh, police officer himself who very much, you know, touted that as, oh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to crack down on crime. I'm, he basically tried to position himself as, I'm not going to be as bad on crime as Bill de Blasio is. But he only barely won by less than 0.1%. 
barely won that nomination against another Democrat named Catherine Garcia, who was a much more hardcore progressive, basically, you know, even more lax on police as well. So then he only barely won that nomination and then was elected, you know, basically vowing to crack down on crime. He, of course, hasn't really done that. No, he's not as bad as de Blasio, but he could he could be worse, but he could be a lot better. Chicago couldn't even do that. Chicago still had to go and elect someone who's arguably just as bad as Lori Lightfoot. So it's going to get a lot worse there before in the Windy City before it gets better. So good luck, Chicago. I'd see, well, see it. you get what's what you happening is a lot of conservatives in Chicago. They're fleeing Chicago, but they're moving to Tennessee. They're not moving mm-hmm. to rural Illinois. So Illinois is and it's not pushing any Illinois districts red. And this is what you're seeing with the, the population shifts in America. A lot of conservatives are moving to red states because they want to raise their families in red states. Which makes but sense. we're not turning any of the blue states purple when we do that. Exactly. You're just surrendering that ground, that crucial electoral ground. And it's just, you know, greater division at that point between the red states, and the blue states, the red states will get redder, blue states will get bluer. And the end result of that is not going to be pretty when it all said and done. And again, if the math does not add up, if we don't win back that Rust Belt, we're never going to see a Republican president ever again. And on that note, we do need to talk a bit about the 2024 presidential race, which over the last uh, couple of weeks suddenly seemed suddenly got a lot bigger on both sides. Um, first, got to talk about the first official candidacy of an outright never Trump candidate. John Bolton announced his plans to run in an interview in Britain, no less, on a British outlet rather than an American outlet. But he hasn't officially filed or anything yet, so it's in that kind of gray area. The first formal never Trump candidacy is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Now, nobody really heard of this guy before he announced he... So it, it's you can tell it's he's not even one of the more famous never Trumpers like a Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, but he has to go and virtue signal and say, you know, I want to save the Republican Party from Trump in this article in uh, Politico here. He explicitly called on President Trump to withdraw from the race in the aftermath of his indictment. And he then uh, detailed his how he wants to campaign and what he wants to do in an interview with ABC's John Carl. I hear people talk about the leadership of our country, and I'm convinced that people want leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts. And that inspires me when I see everyday Americans just saying, give us good leadership, give us common sense, consistent conservatism, and optimism about our great country. And uh, that inspires me, and I believe I can be that kind of leader for the people of America. So, uh, the op- <laughs> so America just wants a leader that's going to make us feel good, is what he's saying. Exactly. The dog whistle is so, it's not even a dog whistle, it's just a regular whistle at this point. Basically, the appeal, we, we don't need leadership that appeals to our worst instincts. That's his way of saying Trump is a racist. You know, Trump attracts racist voters, all, all that nonsense. So just as bland as can be, this guy is a charisma vacuum. Let me tell you, I mean, he just doesn't look impressive. He doesn't sound impressive. There's nothing that stands out about him. You know, I mean, other never Trumpers, you know, Chris Christie's fat. You know, he's 600 pounds. That's something that stands out about him. You know, th- this guy is just, what are you doing, man? I mean, they all say it's it's either for a, camp, a cabinet position or the VP slot, or you want to write a book. This guy obviously has no hope of getting into a second Trump cabinet whatsoever. So he, he's got a book coming out of this. But I think in this guy's case, the psychology of this clown is very, very clear. He doesn't have a chance in hell. Again, even among the ranks of the never Trumpers, Chris Christie, John Bolton, Liz Cheney, the others who are likely to run, who are more prominent than he ever has been. This man clearly at the end of the day is just super salty over the fact that his successor for governor of Arkansas is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who not only supported 
uh, President Trump and was supported by President Trump and her candidacy. But her entire career was started by Trump. He gave her her first prominent platform as the first White House press secretary. I mean, obviously, yes, she's the daughter of the former governor uh, there, Mike Huckabee, who is great. So already she had that name recognition going for her. But she had a whole new level of popularity among the Trump base as the first official spokeswoman for the administration. And on top of that, she's been in office for like just three months now. And she has already outshined this guy over the course of his entire governor's tenure. She's outshined him in less than three months in every way possible. Just sad. And he knows it. He's never going to be remembered. And he's not going to be in any halls of fame for Arkansas governors or anything. He's not going to be remembered. So a Hail Mary bid for president that's never going to have a chance is his last chance to be somewhat remembered. Kind of like those three idiots who tried to run against Trump in 2020 that Trump so accurately called the Three Stooges, which included a former governor or two two former governors. So uh, best of luck to you, Mr. Hutchinson. Uh, let's let's see. Let's see if he can break one percent. I doubt it. But let's let's see what he can do. Someone who does have a chance, though, at uh, breaking one percent is another candidate who announced as of uh, Wednesday announced his exploratory committee, which is this weird like electoral campaign purgatory status, I guess. Like he hasn't <laughs> officially announced, but he's going to announce it. I, I don't understand the point of that. Just say you're announcing at that point. It's obvious. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, everybody. Uh, Jacob, I know you have some thoughts on this. I'll let you go in just a minute, but a uh, question who is tim scott and why is he important don't know let's let's ask someone who is a little more well known who is also from his state which is why he's about to make this endorsement this is from a little while ago this is from before tim scott announced his exploratory committee but this guy anticipating that tim scott would announce his run trey gowdy folks on fox news talking to dana perino about uh why he wants tim scott to run for president I hope he does, Dana, and I'll tell you the same thing I tell Tim. I think he is good for our country. Whether he wins or not is secondary to me. I think all of us would benefit from hearing his story, his optimism, his hopefulness. I mean, he is an unusual elected official. He is exactly in private what you see publicly. He is so, I mean, he balances the, the pain of our country's past with the promise of today, the potential of tomorrow. Okay. There's okay, so oh, I just so got to break in. So Trey yeah. Gowdy is, is your stereotypical baby boomer white Republican who has completely caved to the left on race. He mm. views race no differently than the left does. He sees America as inherently racist. He sees the United States as having gone through some kind of cleansing ritual in the 1960s. And in his mind, it's going to make us all feel better about ourselves and all cleansed of our sins if we can elect a black conservative who will basically make us cleanse us and forgive us of our guilt. This is the kind of quasi-religiosity that the baby boomer generation applied to the civil rights movement. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to a Democrat or a Republican, it's the same exact mentality. Exactly. Yeah, they've completely won that argument. And that that really is what it comes down to is that he without saying it, the quiet part is no, is all but being said out loud for why anyone likes Tim Scott. What is there to say about him? What is it, What is his record? What are his stances? Nothing. It's this ultimate generic platitude speech. And let's just go through it because there's several things I want to break down here. First off, he calls Tim Scott 
an unusual politician. I'm sorry, this man is the most usual politician ever. He's another. What he means is he's black. That's I, what he's trying yes, to say. I, I'm he's sorry. Say he's black, so he's unusual. Oh my! Because otherwise, yeah, Tim, you listen to Tim Scott talk. He talks in the same empty platitudes, the same focus group tested talking points. He's another empty suit on Capitol Hill who, yeah, he happens to be the only black Republican in the U.S. Senate. You know, thanks for nothing. Thanks for nothing, Herschel Walker, by the way. You could have joined the ranks and expanded those ranks a little bit because I would rather have Herschel Walker for president than Tim Scott, if I'm being honest, because at least Herschel Walker is tied to the America First uh, MAGA brand. But he then goes on to say, oh, he's just the same in private as he is in public. Uh, I'm going to press X to doubt that one, Jacob. I don't believe for a second Tim Scott is exactly the same in private as he is in public. But you know, one person who has been also described as that, who I believe when they say is in private the same way he is in public? Donald Trump, all right? Donald Trump, he's basically trying to say, oh, Tim Scott has authenticity. You can't beat Trump when it comes to authenticity. Tim Scott is not more authentic than Donald Trump, okay? I absolutely believe Donald Trump's talks the way he does at a rally in private. You know, it's, Trump does drink Diet Cokes and eat McDonald's on a regular basis. You know, I, I, that's just, that, I like that about him. That's the authenticity we want is not another career politician like Tim Scott. And to highlight your point is that, yes, they, the quiet part is not being said out loud, but it's all but being said out loud. They only support him because he is black. I'm sorry. That's just a fact. And you've said before on, I think on this podcast several times, Jacob, that a great place to go for this kind of the, the boomer mindset is the, the comment section at Breitbart. And that is where we find ourselves today. This a delightful little rabbit hole here. I'm going to document this this journey. This is one of two social media little feuds that we on the Right Take got into through our Right Take account uh, via Facebook. So the Facebook post of the Breitbart article from the Breitbart page of Tim Scott announcing his exploratory committee. Of uh, Quite a few of the top comments, far too many as far as I'm concerned, are basically saying, oh yeah, Tim Scott's great. We love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the top comments, the most liked comments, is from some boomer named Troy Fallert, who said, quote, I like Tim Scott, but he should wait. Him running is just splitting the votes. Uh, for, first, a bit of attention here. What does he mean by splitting the votes? Obviously, he's not talking about splitting votes by taking votes away from Trump. There, nobody is going to turn around and vote for Tim Scott who otherwise would have voted for Trump. We've talked about this before. Everyone who is ready to vote for Trump is going to vote for tr- Trump first and only. There's no Republican voters who are saying, oh, I was going to vote for Donald Trump, but now I'm going to vote for Nikki Haley. No one is saying that. So obviously this guy, it's a painfully clear sign that this guy is talking about Tim Scott splitting the anti-Trump vote. This guy's an anti-Trumper who wants to see someone other than Trump. And other people responding to his comments more or less confirmed that uh, in the replies. But again, he says, I like Tim Scott, but he should wait. So our account uh, at The Right Take responded to him with this first volley, quote, tagging him in the resp- in replying to that thread and saying, quote, can anyone actually name a reason as to why you like Tim Scott? End quote. Fallot responded with, have you read his bio? Probably not. Do your own research. <laughs> Which, uh, this was me for the record. I'll just say so to make it easier to refer to myself in the first person. I responded with, quote, just Google it is not an argument. You're the one declaring he'd make a great VP and or president. I'd expect that such a hardcore fan of his would be able to give even just one reason for liking him so much. To which Fallert then responded with simply saying, quote, compare him to drooling Joe Biden, end quote. To which I got, we got to refer back to this. We talked about this back in episode 91 where we discussed the RNC race and the kind of proxy war between Trump and DeSantis that was. A common flaw that many Republicans make, leaders, politicians, and voters alike, 
is that they all all they think they want or need is a candidate who just isn't the other side. We just need someone who's not Obama. You know, but that's just not true in politics. You can't just convince people to vote against something. They have to vote for something. And th this idiot's logic is just, oh, anybody but Biden, to which I then responded, quote, couldn't that argument be used in favor of just about any Republican? All I'm asking is for one reason as to why you like Tim Scott in particular, end quote. At that point, Mr. Troy Fowler rage quit the conversation. He didn't respond anymore after that. And another boomer jumped in in his defense named Annette McNeil, who in true, who in true boomer fashion typed in all capital letters, genuine person, dash, dash, are you, question mark, to which I responded, quote, what in the world does that even mean? Genuine person? Can you give even just one specific example? No response at that point on. None of them have responded. The boomers' brains have officially boomed out of commission at this point. They Again, the obvious thing is there. I would have more respect for these people, Jacob, Troy and Annette, these boomers. I'd have more respect for them if they just came out and said it and said, yes, I support Tim Scott because he's black. I would have more respect for that self-awareness and yeah. honesty. Well, it reminds me of a conversation that Rush Limbaugh had with a caller back in 2020 at the height of the George Floyd riots. There was this lady who called in because this was when Tim Scott was proposing his uh, his appeasement bill on police reform. This lady calls in and says, oh, I listened to Tim Scott's speech and I think he would make a wonderful president. I, I really I really like his his approach to police reform. And Rush said, um, OK, now, now, folks, don't hate me for this. But <laughs> ma'am, what exactly do you like about Tim Scott? Yes. In his uh, police reform bill. Uh, oh, well, uh, he wants to, uh, she stuttered and stammered for a little bit, and then she remembered one talking point. Oh, he, he wants to do something about uh, uh, qualified immunity. <clears throat> now, Rush Limbaugh, being a gentleman, could have <laughs> utterly humiliated her on the spot and said, now, what exactly is qualified immunity? And, of mm. course, she wouldn't have had any idea what any of that means. He didn't. He ended the conversation said, okay, thank you very much. You have a great day. But the point is, this lady had no idea what qualified immunity is. She had no idea what, what anything that Tim Scott was proposing. All she knew is he's an articulate black Republican who we can put forward as a candidate, and he can't be accused of being racist. And this is the trump card that a lot of Republicans are looking for. Let's just find a minority candidate mm -hmm. who is not white, and then they can't be accused of being racist because when they accuse us of being racist— we can't defend ourselves, and this is this is just the standard line. This, it really, it gives non-white candidates in the Republican Party an unfair advantage yeah. because really they don't have to put in the legwork like a white Republican does when millions and millions of white Republican voters are willing to give them a leg up just because of their race. Yeah, and and like you said, yeah, Rush always was so great to his callers, to his supporters, and to lefties alike. He never he never bashed them. He he would often let them in that case, especially he would let them just trip over their own stupidity. You know, let them expose themselves. But yeah, it's it's so lame. And the worst part too is, you know, it doesn't matter. The left, spoiler alert, the left does not care. If you run a black Republican, you could run Tim Scott. You run some Hispanic candidate named, named Juan Jose Sanchez Rodriguez Garcia Martinez. They were still going to say, oh, oh, they have internalized racism. They'd call Tim Scott a house, you know, they would say like, oh, you're, just, you're, you're still on the plantation, whatever. Joe Biden, you're still in chains, whatever, whatever. They'd say, you know, Hispanic, you know, whatever. Like you, you're just internalized racism. You know, you're basically, you know, white on the inside, all that. They would still do that anyway. And spoiler alert, I believe 
Tim Scott as a Republican nominee would still get maybe no more than 20% of the black vote at best. And that's pushing it. I still think like the, the Democrat would still get at least 80% of the black vote. That's just how it is. I hate to say it. That's just how it is. So if, yeah, he has absolutely no substance whatsoever. And his, and that's my favorite thing. Ask Tim Scott supporters online. We encourage you, our viewers, to do so. Within the letter of the law, of course, go after Tim Scott supporters on Twitter and Facebook and what have you and ask them, just ask them that question. What do you like about Tim Scott? Name one reason why you like Tim Scott. And they will not be. Again, this guy says, have you read his bio? Compare him to Joe Biden. I'm like, that's not what I asked. Give me a reason for liking him. And they know, because these guys know, Troy and Annette, they know why they really support Tim Scott. They know it's because he's black, but they don't want to say that because then they sound racist. So it's, it's, it's great. I love this. That's one of my favorite activities. You were right about the Breitbart comment section, Jacob. It is absolutely glorious. And I like Breitbart overall, but the comment sections are pretty great. One last thing I got to note, by the way, uh, too, uh, looking back on this and studying up on this, Jacob, is there a single state that consistently produces a higher quantity of the most garbage quality Republicans ever than South Carolina? Just, just look at some there of the- is not, but there's a very simple explanation for that. It's because of the military bases in South Carolina. That's the, how is that South the reason? Car- I'm curious. South Carolina has um, a disproportionate number of military bases, and so a lot of the money behind the Republican Party in South Carolina is coming from military personnel and veterans. The military industrial company. Okay, okay. Because yeah, I mean, just look at the people we've got. The illustrious alumni list from South Carolina. You've got Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Trey Gowdy. Lindsey Graham, Nancy Mace, Mark Sanford, one of the three stooges who ran against Trump in 2020, uh, Tom Rice, one of the 10 pro-impeachment Republicans who got primaried out last year. Just consistently, I can't think of a single one. It's it's amazing to me. No other state, not even California has this many rhinos. It's astounding to me. I, and again, it's a deep red state that is going to go for Trump no matter what, but good God, there's not a single... And to quantify, just to to, to to qualify, what I mean by that is the military produces people who are going to be slightly right of center of the rest of the bureaucracy, but ultimately they're not going to deviate dramatically from the rest of the bureaucracy. Like right. a lot of people have this mentality that oh, the armed forces are hardcore right wing, they're hardcore nationalist. You know, they're they're going to be filled mm-hmm. with MAGA people, and more so surely than the Department of Transportation but not that much more than the Department of Transportation. You know what I mean? Like you have to remember the same people who appoint the, the heads of the DOT and the other bureaucracies, they're also appointing the generals. They're also influential in who gets promoted. So, uh, you know, ever since Obama became president, the military has drifted to the left. Mm-hmm. And it's gotten even worse under Biden, obviously, between like Milley and Lloyd Austin. It's an absolute disaster. Um, so then one last thing we got to talk about, again, 2024 news. On the other side, so up to this point for the longest time, the only official challenger to Joe Biden is Marianne Williamson, that crazy guru, you know, plant crystal rocks lady, whatever, from California, who talks about how the New Zealand prime minister is her BFF. She's probably devastated, by the way, that the woman who was prime minister of New Zealand resigned and is not there anymore. So she, if she would become president, she can't talk with her BFF anymore. Too So sad. But finally, he's got another <laughs> challenger, uh, and it's a name everybody knows. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Yes, one of the sons of Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, the the former senator and attorney general who ran for president, by all accounts, would have been president in 1968 had he not been assassinated in California. He announced that he will be running for the Democrat nomination against Joe Biden. Uh, And it's important to note, because we talked about this briefly before we started recording, Jacob, RFK Jr. obviously is a Democrat. Like everyone else in his family, he's campaigned for uh, Democrats, for uh, 
members of his family, obviously. He has considered running for office as well, running for Senate and other positions. But on one key issue, he, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is adored by the far right. And by far right, in this case, I mean the QAnon crowd. He has always been a hardcore vaccine skeptic. And even before the COVID vaccines, he's always been just against vaccines in general, the whole vaccines cause autism thing. And of course, once the COVID vaccines came along, he became a mega superstar. Now, all the vaccines are bad. The COVID vaccines are bad. And of course, now we know the COVID vaccines are more harmful than helpful at this point. Or at best case scenario, the COVID vaccines don't do anything. Worst case scenario, they cause Bell palsy. They cause a bunch of young 20-something-year-old men to just hashtag die suddenly, you know, strokes, what have you. He's become a superstar on this. So on that alone, the the hardcore, again, the, the QAnon boomer crowd loves someone like RFK Jr. So in that sense, I don't think necessarily he'd pull away a lot of voters, like hardcore lefty voters from Biden. But the name obviously does mean something. He's now the fourth member of his family to seek the presidency and the first outside of that main generation of JFK, RFK, and Ted Kennedy. So his last name is the only thing that makes this somewhat notable. Will he be a major candidate? Probably not. Will he end up in the debates? Maybe I could see them trying to shut him out of the debates because he could get him on a debate stage with Joe Biden. It would be pretty rough. Uh, and one last thing I do want to talk about here in this area and get your thoughts on this, Jacob. Roger Stone, who we, we love Roger Stone, a pro-Trump guy from the very beginning, hardcore fan of Nixon, a base political strategist and a fire breather and a fire brand. Very controversial, but we love him. He likes RFK Jr. a lot, not, not on a personal level. He says they have not met. He describes them as acquaintances rather than friends, but he likes what he stands for. And he had made a prediction. I have a link to the tweet here. I'm not going to actually play the video because I'm just going to summarize it here. But he predicts that when RFK Jr. inevitably loses the primaries, President Trump could, and in Roger Stone's mind, should choose RFK Jr. to be his running mate in 2024 for a, quote, unity ticket. You know, a Republican at the top and a Democrat at the bottom of the ticket. Uh, he claims this, among other things, again, unity ticket, a prominent you know name in American politics, and this would build back the bridge that was burned supposedly by among the Trump base, among the QAnon base that doesn't like Trump or is skeptical of Trump now because Trump, of course, led Operation Warp Speed to develop the three vaccines by Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson Johnson. Um, what do you think about this, Jacob? I mean, first off, I don't think that's going to happen. He's not going to pick RFK Jr. But this idea that, that there are a lot of hard right, you know, the QAnon crowd, the ones who aren't really politically involved until Trump came along, that don't like Trump because of the vaccine thing. They incorrectly say Trump supported lockdowns and mandates, which he never did, but they basically think Trump is the devil now because he pushed the vaccine, which is now killing people. Uh, what say you, Jacob? Now, it sounds like Roger Stone is living in a bubble. This is the way it is with a lot of factions, um, political factions. They get in their own little online bubble, and they think that there's a lot more of them, and they have a lot more influence than they actually do. This is there's not enough QAnon voters, not even the QAnon people, just the vax skeptics and the people who blame Trump for the vaccine and refuse to vote for him because of the vaccine. There's just not enough of them to matter. No. So the idea that he needs to put some pro-choice liberal on the ticket in order to placate those people is that's just let's live in a political bubble. Let's not actually live in the real world. Yeah, yeah. I, I hate to say because, again, I like Roger Stone. He's got great style and everything. But, yeah, I think he's wrong on that one. And yeah, I, I do think too, if anything, I, I agree, Jacob, there's not a lot of them, but realistically, I think most of those people, if it comes down to Trump versus Biden again, a lot of those people will come to their senses and they'll come home and they will yeah, vote for they're Trump. They're not going like, to stay home. As a, Yeah, yeah. They'll come home to Trump. They will vote. They will vote for Trump. When push comes mm -hmm. to shove, they'll see how serious it is. And this is our last chance. They will vote for Trump. They're not actually going to stay home and not vote for Trump over vaccines when there's a lot worse to deal with right now than the vaccine. So we'll see how that plays out. But again, I am curious to see, because again, we still don't even know if Biden's going to run or not. There is still a chance because um, 
people people have pointed out, Biden has now delayed his announcement of running in 2024 until the fall, which ostensibly means October, November, which is fairly late. The fall of the year before the election is fairly late. Most people announce like the spring or the summer of the preceding year, May, June, July, in this case, 2023. So is Biden really? I think this is just a matter of Biden being so confident that he has this in the bag that he doesn't have to worry about it. That is true. I, he definitely wasn't boldened by the midterm results. So I think in his mind, he thinks he's got it. But I'm sure there are plenty of handlers who, you know, among other things, when they see him, you know, his first remarks after the Nashville shooting is to cr do this horrible comedy routine about ice cream flavors right after a bunch of kids just got shot like that. People see that like we cannot run this guy again, but we'll see. We'll see where that goes. On that note, having mentioned speaking of Nashville, we move on to our main topic now, and this is the white pill, as suggested by you, Jacob, which I am all for talking about. Are the Republicans finally doing their damn job? Is the GOP finally growing a pair? Is the GOP finally finding a spine? And is that spine made of steel? It all comes down to two southern states whose names start with T-E. First, of course, we got to start with Tennessee, where again, in the aftermath of the tranny terrorist attack in Nashville, where six Christians, six American Christians at the Covenant School, the Presbyterian School in Nashville, three adults, three kids, three, those three kids were all nine years old, were killed by a tranny, a woman who believed she was a man. And the subsequent backlash that, that happened at this point, the backlash is an even bigger deal than the shooting itself, because on Thursday, March 30th, so the same week that the shooting happened on Monday, three days later on Thursday, the same day Trump's indictment was announced, Earlier in the day, you had a mob, and I mean an actual full-fledged mob of deranged trannies and other far-left activists, and yes, younger people, mostly millennials and Zoomers, commit an insurrection. They committed domestic terrorism, Jacob. They stormed the state capital of Tennessee in response to you know, the backlash that the tranny community is now facing after Nashville. We have just one clip here. We'll play a little bit of it. Um, th this is the video proof. You can see, again, we'll have the link in the description below so you can see the video for yourself of these tranny terrorists assaulting state troopers as they try to violently breach the Tennessee state capitol. Like they're all shoving their bodies up against the troopers. The troopers are, five or six of them are blocking the doorway with their own bodies to not let them through. But these freaks are rushing them. There's one, this freak, this black guy with dyed blonde Afro hair and a blue sweater who shoves body, like slams his way through them. They grab him. They, they're holding him because, you know, he assaulted them. But then they're holding him. They're, he has his hands up like, oh, don't shoot, don't shoot. Hands up, don't shoot. But then the crowd starts chanting, give him back. Give him back. They're screaming, F you. They're holding him. He assaulted officers. They should arrest him. And then So then eventually they bring him back to the front lines and they let him, they kind of nudge him back into the crowd and they all hug him like he's a hero now. He's probably going to write a book or something and get verified on Twitter or something. I don't know. But that's all you have to do, Jacob, is if someone gets arrested, the crowd just needs to chant, give him back and they'll unarrest him. That, that's clearly how it works. It's just so again, we have this video footage, this proof. It was a violent insurrection. It was a domestic terrorist attack. It was sedition. It was it was the most horrible thing to happen in this country since the Civil War. And it <laughs> and it continued from there. It, it gets worse because that was in the that was in the halls of the Capitol building outside the main legislative chamber. The real issue here is the video confirmation. Again, this is video 
from inside the actual legislative chamber where the state house was meeting at the time, they were, you know, conducting other business when three Democrat lawmakers, Justin Jones of the 52nd district, Justin Pearson of the 86th district and Gloria Johnson of the 90th district joined the rioters for a brief period of time to urge them on and encourage them on with megaphones. Then later, the three lawmakers used their access to get back into the chamber and they brought some of the rioters in with them to onto the floor and up in the balcony to disrupt the proceedings in the legislature. chant up for a while as the leadership is trying to figure out what to do like do we do we adjourn and which of course they eventually did and one of them has a megaphone so he's yelling through a megaphone now So again, it's it's kind of comedic. It's this tiny little bullhorn. That's the saddest little bullhorn you've ever seen. You can, it's like Pink from when he turns into a fascist dictator and Pink Floyd's the wall. Like he has a megaphone, but you can't even understand a damn word he's saying because the megaphone is so garbage. It's it's like that here. But I love that you know one of the the hysterical harpies up on the balcony screams, "Do something!" And oh boy, you better believe. The legislature did something in the aftermath of this. So they adjourned. Uh, order was eventually restored. The the rioters were forced back out of the Capitol. And then they returned and resumed their business. So following this, which happened on Thursday, the following Monday, April 3rd, all three of these lawmakers were stripped of their committee assignments. Then a few days later, Thursday, April 6th, one week after this violent insurrectionist, domestic terrorist, seditionist attack on the state Capitol, the House voted largely along party lines to expel two of the three of them. Uh, Jones and Pearson were both expelled, while Johnson managed to avoid her own expulsion by just one vote. Uh, real quick, the numbers here, because we got to name names here. There's one Republican who voted against all three expulsion measures, this, this cuck Republican named Charles Baum. He was the only Republican to vote against uh, expelling Jones uh, when the House voted 72 to 25 to get rid of him. House voted 69-26 in favor of expelling Pearson, with Baum and another Republican named John Gillespie voting against it. And Johnson ultimately survived her expulsion vote because you need at least two-thirds majority, so 66 out of the 99 seats there. Uh, the vote against her passed 65 to 30, so one vote shy. Six Republicans came to her rescue. Charles Baum, Rush Brickham, Brian Ritchie, Lowell Russell, Mike Sparks, and Sam Whitson. So this is obviously a, a huge deal. This is, this is great news that the GOP took action and got rid of two of the three of them, a majority of them at the very least. Uh, we'll come back to the, the exactly what happened in just a bit. But Jacob, I want to hear uh, you want to give your take on this. So this was this protest was organized by March for Our Lives, which of course began with the Stoneham Douglas um, Stoneham. What is it called? Stoneham, Stoneham St Douglas. St Marjorie. Stoneman Douglas in um in uh, South Florida. Flo I think Parkland. Parkland is where it was. Yeah, Parkland, Florida. Stoneman Douglas High School. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, back in 2018, so March for Our Lives blew up, became a huge thing. Of course, it's funded by all the usual suspects, a lot mm -hmm. of billionaires, a lot of leftist billionaires who will fund any calls on the left. As a matter of it's trying to ban AR-15s or trying to, you know, support gay marriage or whatever, they just throw money that they have it to spend. So this was organized as a walkout on the exact time that the police received the first call from the shooting at the Covenant School. 
So there were roughly 500 to 1,000 students that attended this march from around Nashville, which is really a drop in the bucket compared to all of the students in Nashville. So what happened is most of the schools around the downtown area, as they started the walkout, they just let out. Because, of course, these schools are run by leftists. They're run, the principals, the teachers are all leftists. So they're like, okay, yeah, go ahead and you're, you're free to go. So most of the kids are like, okay, we get a free day from school. They went home. Well, the hardcore leftist kids, then they, of course, marched down to the Capitol and protested and rioted. So if you listen to their chant, No Action, No Peace, this plays right into the mentality of the activist organizations that pretty much run our country. Because they are it's the activist organizations who are behind Bud Light getting a man to act like a woman in their commercial. It's behind all of the major corporations supporting BLM, supporting the trans, uh, the transgender movement. It's these activists who believe that th- they claim to support democracy, but when they lose elections, they believe that rioting is justified in the yep. cause of justice. Totally. So if you can't win an election, then it's perfectly okay to storm the capital of the legislators that beat your candidates and force them to accept your laws. And it's just classical, basically using Marxist tactics toward any end of their own. So after, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, because a friend brought up to me a very interesting point that realistically, looking back on, of course, because this brings a huge spotlight to the left's hysteria over January 6th. And obviously the question whether or not it's a double standard or not for both sides. You could argue at this point, both sides, because have taken opposite stances on this, but a friend pointed out to me, he said, realistically, January 6, 2021 at the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. was going to happen either way. There was going to be a protest in the Capitol building, no matter what happened. If Trump had won the election and he did win the election, it was stolen from him. But if you know Trump officially won the election and then that vote on January 6th with Mike Pence and all them was to certify his victory, you would have seen a mob of Black Lives Matter and Antifa storm the Capitol. They absolutely, I mean, they'd spent the whole summer just burning down half the country. Oh, of course. Oh yeah, for sure. Exactly. But here's the key difference. This is the key difference between the, the right-wing protest on January 6th and the protest that would have been on January 6th if Trump had been reelected. Mm-hmm. The left would have recognized that Trump legitimately won, but they would not have cared. If you remember, there were riots in Washington, D.C. and other cities after Trump legitimately won in 2016. Yes. They were trying mm-hmm. to overthrow the, the Trump election back then when he legitimately won. Honestly, when the left loses yeah. elections, they, they believe they are justified in rioting and taken over by force if necessary – uh, one of their favorite slogans, and in fact, there's a leftist group called "By Any Means Necessary." Yeah, uh, they believe that they're justified in doing so when they legitimately lose an election. The right wingers who rioted on January 6th, they were doing so because they believed that the people's votes had been defrauded. They Which believed the people, yeah. the people's legitimate vote had been overturned. They believed that Trump had legitimately won, and they were essentially defending democracy. Because they believe that Trump had won democratically. Now, you can disagree that Trump won the election, but you can't claim that these people were attacking democracy. Right. They believed in their heart that they were defending democracy. Yes. So essentially, when the left riots, they are rioting because they don't agree with democracy. Yeah. They're not willing to abide by democratic the democratic process, and which is why you see these three members of the Tennessee state legislature um, basically rioting themselves. Because they can't get what they want through the legislative process, so they are going to knowingly and willfully violate the Tennessee rule. I mean, the Tennessee state, the Tennessee Constitution gives the legislature the right to make its own rules and the right to discipline its own members. Yes. So these three members are going to willfully violate the rules that are laid out and provided for in the Tennessee Constitution that were are implemented by the democratically elected representatives. 
in the name of democracy. So they're going to violate, basically they're going to violate democracy in order to claim to defend democracy. It's, they are revolutionaries. Yeah. And as we're going to hear in the audio later on, these two black members are basically just trying to reenact the 1960s. That's this is one of them. Justin Jones is actually, he's from Oakland. He went to college at Fisk university in Nashville, which is an HBCU. And so his entire time in Tennessee has been in activism. When he arrived in Tennessee, he became an activist as a black student at a black student at a black university. He was active in the black lives matter protest in Nashville in 2020. And then he gets elected to the legislature and all he knows how to do is be a radical activist. And even the Afros that they wear, it's, it's hearkening back to the sixties. <laughs> so, you know, I couldn't, I wasn't the least bit surprised when I heard him speak because they speak just like they dress. Enough hasn't been done to ban guns or slash they're defending trannies. You know, like, oh, trannies are under attack, you know, because that's that's the thing, too. It comes down to why even did they storm the Capitol? Because the media rushed to say, oh, this had nothing to do with trannies. This was all about gun control. They just want something to be done about gun control. Newsweek actually did a hilariously rushed, horribly written fact check, basically saying, oh, the claim by conservatives that it was transgender people who stormed the Capitol is false. And they don't actually, of course, naturally, fact checks are garbage. They don't actually debunk that. All they do is just say, oh, well, these were anti-gun, these were pro-gun control activists who marched for our lives. They were there, you know, in support of banning guns. That doesn't disprove the presence of trannies, all right? Being anti-gun and being tran pro-tranny, those aren't mutually exclusive. You can be, you could absolutely be both of those things because clearly the only trannies who don't support gun control are the people like Audrey Hale who use them to carry out mass shootings against little kids. But... It was just so they were rushing to do damage control because, again, we talked about in the previous episode, episode number 95, tranny terrorism. You had NBC with a headline saying the trans community is now in fear. You have you know, the White House but saying that they stand in support of the trans community. I got to play this clip from Karine Jean-Pierre. This is days after Nashville. This is the official stance of the Biden White House. LGBTQI plus kids are resilient. They are fierce, they fight back, they're not going anywhere, and we have their back. This administration has their back. We are so proud of the kids across this country who have organized protests and school walkouts to tell the politicians in their states to stop this legislative bully. So she says, we are proud of the kids who stormed a state capitol. She says, we have their back. And the optics, Jacob, the optics, she says, they are tough. They fight back. Using that language after a tranny just murdered six people, including three nine-year-old kids. Not the best optics there, Jacob. That I, I don't know, man. Call me crazy. That was That's not the best uh, phrasing, to say the least. You know, imagine no, if... No. No, you're you're crazy. That's actually the best uh, the best phrasing they could have possibly come up with because you got to remember they completely control the media, they completely control Hollywood, they completely control all of the major streaming services, they control national public radio. They have their grip in every single cultural institution. There isn't any institution they have as much control over the American cultural institutions as the communists did in the Soviet Union. There is absolutely no difference. So they can say anything they want to be as hypocritical as they want. They can have horrible optics. And ultimately, it doesn't matter because yeah. if the other side gains an upper hand, what do they do? They just activate the activist groups. If the activist groups don't don't get the job done, the corporations will get the job done. Mm -hmm. So ultimately – And if the corporations you know, don't get the job done – control everything. And if the corporations will get the job done, the bureaucracy will get the job done. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's insane. And 
but on that note, again, just real quick here, going after this this argument, like, oh, it has nothing to do with trannies. It was gun control. We tweeted this. Uh, this is important. The day after the storming of the Tennessee Capitol, March 30th, which was a Thursday, the next day, Friday, March 31st, another mob of tranny activists stormed the Florida state Capitol out of protest of some more bills that were passed, you know, basically saying, hey, you can't teach three-year-olds about, you know, sex, you know, because that's not right. And they're chanting, whose schools are schools? And they're holding signs saying, cure transphobia. We're just going to play a little bit of this here. Two of these girls are wearing yellow vests, by the way. How dare they? What a mockery of the real yellow vest movement in France. They're on the floor, they're, they're up on, on the balcony, in the well. The, the outer, this is the actual legislature. It's like a lobby. Oh, and then there's this one guy. Gotta play this guy for a moment. It's this horribly effeminate guy in this the most colorful shirt ever. Skinny, scrawny guy, too. Goes out to the gun in the middle of these activists. He quiets them down so he can talk. He's like, it's my turn. I want to be famous. And in the, the highest pitch voice, he tries to sound tough. He tries to sound like he's yelling. But this guy's the biggest cigarette you've ever seen. For those who understand British slang, you'll understand what I'm getting at there. The thing is, like, it, it's, it's funny. It's, it's hilarious, you know, the, the, these freaks right now. But the reality is most gladly put every single conservative in America in prison if oh, they yeah. had the opportunity, if they had the power. And they are going to keep pushing until they do have that power. And this is something that I don't think the Tennessee legislature quite understands. So, uh, yes, they did grow a spine. They did grow a backbone and stick to the rules and kick these two out for acting like a couple of clowns, acting like a couple of revolutionaries. But if you listen to the speeches of the conservative lawmakers on the floor of the Tennessee le um, State House. I think this is more or less like old school conservatives just doing what old school conservatives do. I don't think they actually calculated the backlash. I don't think it, they sat down, weighed the cost and said, OK, we're going to make a stand. We're going to grow a spine. We're going to do what Republican voters want us to do. I think this was just a matter of you've got a, a good old boys club of Tennessee conservative Republicans. You have these two outsiders who didn't play by the rules, so they're going to kick them out. And it's just following procedure. So it stands to be seen whether or not they're actually going to like if these two come back, which they are going to come back mm -hmm. because uh, Justin Jones has already been reappointed by the Tennessee, by the Nashville Metro Council, by a unanimous vote, no abstentions. Pearson will be reappointed by the Memphis. Uh, I don't know if Memphis is its entire county, but it's the counties who reappoint these interim legislators. So Pearson will be reappointed. So it stands to be seen if these two are going to say, okay, well, now we have the national spotlight. We have the Tennessee Democratic Party's coffers have grown thanks to us. So we are now the most powerful Democrats in the state of Tennessee. We're just going to repeat our antics and dare them to expel us again. So it remains to be seen whether the Tennessee Republicans are going to maintain this posture. Because, like I said, I don't think they actually weighed the cost. They weren't thinking, okay, these guys are going to be invited on the MSNBC. They're going to be invited on the CNN. They're going to be invited on the Good Morning America. The president is going to invite them to the White House. The vice president is going to visit Nashville two days after they're yep. expelled and give a speech at Fisk University. I don't think any of this went through any of their brains. In their minds, it's, okay, this is just the good old boys club. This is our country club. These two outsiders are not playing by the rules, so they have to be kicked out. And if they're, and if you listen to, I think it was Cameron Sexton, the speaker of the House of Representatives yes. in Tennessee, he gave a speech on the floor 
in which he said, uh, he, you know, said, okay, now look, let's vote to expel them. And if they're, if they are elected back, if the voters choose to send them back, then we will welcome them with open arms oh. because this is the way the process works. And it's kind of the, it's kind of the idea that, okay, you know, it's this old gentleman, this old Englishman's gentleman's mentality that, okay, we have certain rules in our club. And if you violate the rules, then you, we are going to suspend you. And we're going to give you a little slap on the wrist. But if you decide to come back and reform yourself, then we will welcome you with open arms. and You can be a part of the gentleman's club. It, it, it doesn't really click, I think, with a lot of older conservatives that these people want you dead. You know, because <laughs> if you see the video of Justin Jones returning to his triumphant return to the floor of the Tennessee House of Representatives, he and Gloria uh, Pearson are uh, not Gloria Pearson. What's her last Gloria name? Gloria Johnson. Gloria Johnson, John, he and yeah. Gloria Johnson are walking arm in arm down the middle to cheers from the balcony. He's holding up a, the black power fist and he walks up to the front and waves the black power fist in front of all these white legislators who voted to expel him. Now he's demanding that Cameron Sexton step down as Speaker of the House of Representatives. So he and Pearson are clearly now the most the two most powerful Democrats in the state of Tennessee. And if the Republican Party in Tennessee is actually going to follow through with this, they're going to have to put their foot down and expel them again if they decide to break the rules again. Which they should, yeah. Because, I mean, uh, sure. But then ultimately, like you, you mentioned before, the, the handful of rioters who showed up, there were, there were not that many. That Like the vast majority of kids who walked out of school just went home to get a free day home from school. You know, there weren't that many of them. There, there were probably there were certainly way more protesters on January 6th than there were, in, in this case, Tranuary 6th, as some people have called it, also calling it a hashtag transurrection, which is great. So I call them transurrectionists. So they, once again, are going to overestimate that. They're going to, because Tennessee is on a roll. The, a main reason why this happened, again, screw what Newsweek says, this was about the trannies. No state has done more to lead the fight against the tranny agenda than Tennessee. They've banned men and women's sports. They've banned the surgeries. They've they banned the trans bathrooms. They have been leading the way more than Texas, more than any other state. And that's why they can't stand it. But you've mentioned it several times, Jacob. We do got to play this. This is a little compilation from the New York Times that starts with Justin Pearson, then goes to Gloria Johnson, and then Justin Jones. These are the speeches they gave on the day of their expulsion vote. You are seeking to expel District 86's representation from this house in a country that was built on a protest. In a country that was built on a protest. First of all, I, uh, such a career politician. These guys, by the way, these two, these two black guys, they're like in their late 20s. They're about my age. They're young. But this guy already is trained on how to be a politician. He talks softly, long pause, then raises his voice as he repeats the point. You who celebrate July 4th, 1776, pop fireworks and eat hot dogs. You say to protest is wrong because you spoke out of turn, because you spoke up for people who are marginalized. You spoke up for children who won't ever be able to speak again. You spoke up for parents who don't want to live in fear. You spoke up for, for, for Larry Thorne who was murdered by gun violence. You They're equating their protest with the founding of this country. They're equating all protests with the founding of this country. They're basically saying, oh, the protest, the civil rights protest was a protest. That's basically basically saying civil rights is just as important as the founding of this country. That's basically what he's getting at with the, the way he's playing with language here. Spoke up for people that we don't want to care about in a country built on people who speak out of turn, who spoke out of turn, who fought out of turn to build a nation. 
And this is another brief video of the rioters. Again, this is on the day. This is on the day of the expulsion vote. So. And I hear a lot of talk about caring about children, but I continue to hear no one having conversations about things that will prevent gun violence from coming to our doors. There are so many things we could do that would would change the trajectory of where we're headed. More school shootings, more church shootings, more Waffle House shootings, all of these, theater shootings. It's happening everywhere, folks. There's one common denominator. It's the guns. What Tennessee and, and is the, doing. Then you ban guns and then what? It becomes like Britain and it's a bunch of mass knife stabbings. Like, is that what it's going to be? Like, these, I can't stand these. And again, she's there again trying to whitewash and say, oh, no, it was nothing to do with the trans stuff. It was all about the guns. They, they're so desperate to make it seem like it was about the guns because they realize that the trans issue is not nearly as much of a winning issue for Americans as, as the guns supposedly are. And then here's Justin Jones. Is a power grab of ousting three lawmakers, your colleagues, simply because you have the numbers to do it. But we what is with that guy's cadence? Simply because it's, you it's have hilarious. the numbers. Like he, that's not his normal speech. You know that's not his normal speech pattern. No, of course He's not. simply imitating the 1960s civil rights icons that he worships. And this is what both of these guys are trying to do. They are trying to cast themselves as the new Malcolm X, the new MLK, and they're copying their speech patterns rather than just be themselves in 2023. They've got to harken back and try to be like the new the new kid on the block that's the new civil rights icon. Because for them, and this is something that the right has to understand if the right wants to win. This is a religion. This yes. is not politics. This is a religion. The civil rights movement to the left is a was a religious revival. And this is their – it's pretty much their creation myth, the modern left in America – the 1960s, the civil rights, MLK, mm -hmm. the, all this is their creation myth. And everything they do is in the spirit of 1964. And so if you're going to counter this, you have to counter it as if you're trying to eradicate a religion or convert a religious group to convince themselves that their religion is false and that their gods are false. This isn't. This is more than politics. It really is. I mean, any moment he's just going to burst out with, I have a dream that one day every boy will be allowed to wear a skirt and every girl will be allowed to use the man's restroom. I have a dream today. Like, it's it's so bad. Ugh. And again, they're making it about things it had nothing to do with. They're making it about guns and about race when it was never about that. It was about a deranged tranny who killed kids, which they knew. They know that was the most damaging thing to their narrative in a long time. There was no defense of that there's no defense whatsoever and again they tried nbc and some others tried to make audrey hale seem to be the victim but you cannot make a victim out of a woman who believed she was a man and because some people wouldn't accept that and wouldn't indulge in her delusion she had to go kill kids they there was nothing they could do that's why Karine jean-pierre focuses more on oh we're, we stand with the trans community as they're under attack nothing about the dead kids we stand with the trans community which basically means we stand with the shooter that's what these people are about. It's disgusting. After a mass shooting plagued our community, the most direct action this legislative body takes, or should I say my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are taking, is to expel us for speaking about the issues of weapons of war on our streets. We called for you all to ban assault weapons and you respond with an assault on democracy.
And again, there it is. Democracy. They love that <laughs> stupid word. Like and, uh, weapons of war. Are you kidding me? Again, that's the that's the thing Biden said in his latest State of the Union. He said ban assault weapons now, ban them forever, ban them once and for all. Which, by the way, he did that after describing a shooting that involved a handgun, not a rifle. He was talking about the uh, the, the Monterey uh, Bay shooting. So th these people are just sick. They're demented. And yeah, like you well, said, every, what's hilarious is now they're everything is all connected. And this is the way that all these leftist groups do. Like you'll have a leftist group that claims to be environmentalist, but gets involved with LGB LGBTQIA through Z issues <laughs> or gets involved with pro-choice issues because they, they are, it's like a spider web. So now all of a sudden he's defending democracy. He claims yep. that his expulsion is an attack on democracy, but it, here's how democracy works. You elect representatives. The representatives enact laws in accordance to the Constitution that was democratically ratified by the people. Those representatives who are democratically elected then enact rules and uh, you know appoint bureaucrats to enact their own legislation. In this case, it's creating rules around the legislative body. They create rules in accordance to the Constitution to expel members who violate their own rules. So this is in perfect accordance with democracy, with Tennessee democracy. But it's the, the, the democracy means whatever the left wants it to mean in the moment. Yeah, that that's that's their favorite buzzword is that, yeah, again, if they lose an election, suddenly, you know, they're they're protesting to overturn an election is democracy. Uh, yeah, Trump's election, Trump's by yeah. being democratically elected. Trump's election was an attack on democracy. You mentioned they're, they're basically LARPing as civil rights icons. And there's this video of the three of them arriving for their expulsion vote, walking through the state capitol through the mob of protesters who you know support them and they are walking arm in arm or not arm in arm uh jones is alone he just has a fist raised johnson and pearson are arm in arm with their fists raised above their heads they're walking super slow by the way like painfully slow so, and Tennessee 3, which you know was AstroTurf, by the way, that just became so AstroTurf, that's not an organic term in the slightest, but it was like when uh, the GOP impeached, or when the Democrats impeached Trump for the first time, remember, in early 2020 uh, with the Ukraine thing, and Nancy Pelosi and all them did that super slow walk through the halls of Congress to walk the articles of impeachment over to the Senate, and then slowly hand it over like it was a giant ceremony, you know, walking as slowly, like, like an African funeral procession or something, they're walking painfully slow, arm in arm, and I gotta point this out as well, again, this tweet, Featuring that video is from a woman named Kelsey Gibbs at Kelsey M. Gibbs verified. Um, she says in the tweet, quote, the three Democratic representatives up for expulsion vote just arrive in the chamber arm in arm. The vote is scheduled to happen this morning. She tags her channel, which is at NC5 uh, News Channel 5 and hashtag Tennessee 3. And her tweet, by the way, let me read that again. It's hard. I got to enunciate this properly. She said the three Democrat representatives up for expulsion vote just arrived in the chamber Arm and arm. She didn't say, you got that? She didn't say arm in arm. She said arm and arm. Her bio, by the way, says Emmy Award winner, education reporter, NC5, Master of Arts degree from uh, UIS Public Affairs Reporting Program. Uh, and, oh, and cat mom to Tony. And then she lists her email. Emmy Award winner, Master of Arts degree, you can't even get arm in arm properly. These people, it's like you've said before, Jacob, these journalists, the elite journalists of class are idiots. They they went to school for this and they can't do basic grammar right. It's it's embarrassing. 
Well, going yeah, and going—that's true. But going back to the the religious aspect, they had a rally after they were reinstated, and re- the Reverend Mark Thompson, who, as far as I can tell, has hasn't—I don't—I'm lo- reading his bio. I don't see where he ever pastored a church. He's just—he <laughs> was involved in the Jesse Jackson campaigns oh, in the '80s, and he's been a civil rights activist. But anyway, uh, he c- compared Justin Jones's reinstatement to the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, my. in fact. He, <laughs> yeah, he appeared on uh, he appeared on the beat with Ari Melber, and he said that um, this is great that it's happening on Easter Monday because he said, "quote The word is right; it's jubilant." Last week they sent these two gentlemen home, but it's Easter weekend, so they've been resurrected. So yeah, they, this this is the religious fanaticism that these people have taken the civil rights movement down, and it, it is their religion. They they genuinely are as dedicated to the advancement of whatever new trend and new fad is in the civil rights movement or can be associated with the civil rights movement as any religious fanatic is in spreading his his faith to other people. Yeah, that's I'm pretty sure that qualifies as blasphemy, but whatever. I mean, I'm not a reverend, so what would I know, you know? But as someone once said uh, on Twitter, I'll never forget this. I should have screenshot so I can uh, attribute it properly. Someone once said in reference to Al Sharpton, calling Al Sharpton a reverend is like calling Jeffrey Dahmer a gourmet chef. Like it's it's just <laughs> these people who use these fake reverend titles, and you got people who well they get they get a degree in theology and that that makes them a reverend <sighs> even if they never pastor a church even if they never do anything associated with Christianity they just they get a degree in theology and then they spend the rest of their life working for activist organizations pushing left wing politics. And before we move on, because we do want to talk about the other white pill on the GOP doing their job, gotta go over once again. The Right Take had some great hits on Twitter talking. I I had a field day using our Twitter account to tweet about this as was happening, celebrating, dancing on what appeared to be their political graves, maybe a little bit premature, but nonetheless, celebrating, throwing in all the hashtags so you get noticed. Um, We had three great interactions with lefties on Twitter in the aftermath of the transurrection and the expulsion vote. First, an interaction that got a lefty banned. Yes, we are doing the Lord's work in cleaning up Twitter. We, uh, I posted a tweet that said, quote, The at Tennessee GOP at TNGOP is about to become even greater superstars than they already are. This is how you deal with these traitors and freaks. Hashtag Tennessee 3, hashtag Transurrection, hashtag January 6th. One of the responses we got was a user um, at IncomparableAD3, or it is a handle at just AD3. He replied, quote, no, they are crap flinging chimps like you. None of you deserve to live. So I screenshotted that one, and we'll, I'll have, for, for the video version, I'll be sure to include these screenshots in the video version, which can be found on Rumble, BitChute, and YouTube. Uh, I replied, quote, screenshot, quote tweeting it, screenshot it for posterity. This is what these deranged pro trainee perverts think about normal people, i.e. people who don't support drugging, grooming, mutilating, and raping little kids. We then further pointed out the hypocrisy of his bio um, uh, with a tweet where I said, quote, 83, colon, Quote, if you don't support grooming and mutilating little kids, you don't deserve to live. Also, 83 has in his bio, quote, Catholic and, quote, red or blue, God loves you. (laughs) So God loves you if you're red or blue, but I'm going to say you don't deserve to live. Then come the next day, sure enough, I checked on that tweet, the quote tweet, and the the tweet where his tweet should have been in the quote tweet said, this tweet is from a suspended account. So, sayonara, 83, get that crap out of here. Secondly... This was a lot of fun. Uh, didn't result in any direct action, but it, it was a fun interaction nonetheless. In response to the same tweet that got uh, 83 banned, a user named at C-Me-B, that's spelled C-E-E, 
M-E-B-E-E, said, quote, GOP has just amplified the voices of hashtag Tennessee 3 and gun reform. This will not end well for the GOP in elections going forward. Slight tangent, uh, this user misspelled the word Tennessee. She put one S instead of two. So that's how you can tell that these are people who are not from Tennessee because they don't even know how to spell it. Um, second, uh, who is she kidding? And who is she kidding? Again, as you mentioned, Jacob, this does amplify them. This does give them a platform. But again, this is not going to make Tennessee flip blue. This could give them a lot of money and they could flip some seats in the legislature, but it's not going to see just, just like Phil Bredesen in 2018. You're not going to flip Tennessee blue. That's not happening. Yeah. So yeah, I just want, I just want to mention that. So if, if I'm a Tennessee legislator, what I want to do is I want to purposely do things that's going to put Tennessee legislators, particularly minority Tennessee legislators, in the in the perpetual spotlight. Because if I can keep the Democrat, the National Democratic Party focused on these persecuted Tennessee Democrats that are being beaten up by the Republican bullies, I can keep them distracted and focused on a red state that they're never going to win. Yes. I can keep their donors pouring hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> into the coffers of a Tennessee Democratic Party that is never going to win a statewide election. Nope. And while they're doing that, that's money they can't spend in swing states, and that's time that they can't spend in swing states. I want to keep expelling these two over and over and over again for the nitpickiest <laughs> of things. I want to do everything I can to bring activist groups to Tennessee to think that they're going to spark a color revolution because because every penny they spend, every second they spend here is wasted. Exactly, exactly. Uh, a little bit of a bonus here in this interaction. I found this hilarious. Nobody was noticing or liking any of her tweets, by the way, or certainly the original tweet, uh, you know, saying, oh, this will backfire on the GOP going forward. She had to go back and retweet her own tweet. She was the only retweet. And no likes. I was the quote tweet. She was the retweet. I then pointed this out saying, quote, oh, and by the way, nice job retweeting yourself there since, you know, no one else will. To which she then replied, coping and seething, quote, yes, I did. Glad you noticed, end quote. So get out of here when you're so sad. We can, we can pull in likes and retweets on a regular basis from our loyal fans and followers because we're, re I mean, this person could be a bot or just a really sad user for all we know, but it was glorious to see that. This was the best achievement, the third and final interaction here, and then we'll move on to, to the other based Southern state. Um, we managed to successfully bully a massive left-wing account into deleting a tweet once they realized how hypocritical it was. This is from an account called The Tennessee Holler at The TN Holler, H-O-L-L-E-R, um, an account with over 168,000 followers, by oh, the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're run out of Franklin. That's a that's an outfit run out of Franklin, which is a suburb of uh, Nashville. It's one of those it's one of those instances where you've got some leftist who has um, experience in the national media. He decides to move back home and try to mm -hmm. bring his left, try to carpet bag his left-wing politics to his native state. Yeah, and this was great. I when I saw this, and again, I checked to see how many followers they have. I'm like, holy, we actually won this one. So they tweeted a quote from Rep. Uh, Jones in his final speech, saying, "Quote: By breaking decorum, we broke the glass of your false power for the world to see." End quote. Uh, dash at brother Jones underscore. You know, tagging him to attribute the quote to him. Then they included the bullseye emoji. And hashtag Tennessee three, you know, the dart in the middle of the dartboard as if to say like, oh, he hit the mark. He hit the bullseye to which I quote tweeted it and said, quote, so obstruction of an official proceeding is OK as long as said proceeding is unjust in quotation marks. Then every single hashtag January 6th prisoner must be released immediately, according to you. Sure enough. 
A little while later, they deleted the tweet because they realized, again, if this got more attention, again, they managed or they're successfully turning it to the expulsions. But if the GOP just kept hammering, you guys let an insurrection. If they kept focusing on the riot that happened in the first place, the mm -hmm. assaulting of state yep. troopers, the Democrats would have nothing because they've spent the last two years screeching and moaning and whining and crying endlessly about January 6th and how it was the worst thing in the history of the world. And by the way, I want to point out that this – the equivalent of Pearson and Jones leading the protest with a bullhorn and standing in solidarity with the rioters would have been the exact same thing as if uh, Senator Hawley had mm -hmm. gone out there with the January 6th protesters and led them through the Capitol. Right. This would have been the same thing if Ted Cruz had gone out there and joined the protesters and led them to the Senate floor. That This would have been the exact same situation. In that instance, the the Democratic Senate would have been justified in expelling them from the Senate because that you don't join the protesters as they're protesting. Like you, you have some decorum, you have some class. And you just don't do that. But this is the same instance. You know, this just shows that they have no decorum. They have no class. Yep. Everything is a revolution for them. Yeah. The most they could get out of Hawley is that he walked to the Capitol and saw the protesters on the east side and he raised a fist toward them. He didn't go up to meet them. He didn't lead them. He just raised a fist. And that image became, oh, this is birthday. He's an insurrectionist. Or, you know, oh, remember yeah, they freaked out about that. Yeah. Or remember uh, the days after January 6th, they tried to accuse Lauren Boebert of doing that. They tried to accuse Lauren Boebert of leading an unauthorized tour of the Capitol building on January 5th fifth with a bunch of people who went on to become protesters like oh she was helping them scope the joint out she was helping showing them the path in the tunnels and whatnot which is garbage that's not true but they tried to make it seem like some republicans led protesters into the capitol and that didn't happen and of course none of them josh hawley lauren hope bobert none of them have been expelled so whereas here you have people who actually did use their access to lead rioters into the chamber and they got expelled for it. So they can cry all they want. Again, the GOP should just hammer that and hammer the transaction that it was, again, A, trannies rioting because they're mad at backlash that they're being exposed for being child killers. And B, it was actually led by Democrats in office. Just keep hammering that and don't back down. That's what it should be. Will they actually take that stance? That remains to be seen. But the next best thing you can do is what happened in the good old Lone Star State Texas. This is a huge deal. So Jacob, you want to go ahead and just summarize for us what uh, went down in glorious Texas over the weekend? So during the 2020 riots, during the BLM uh, protests, uh, Sergeant Army Sergeant Daniel Perry, uh, he was an Uber driver. He had a ride and he there were people, there were rioters in front of his apartment building. I think he had posted on Facebook that there's some rioters out here may have to kill somebody. Like it was, a it joke. was a joke, yeah. but it was uh, like this was during when you know the rioters were burning stuff down and threatening people's lives. So, I, I mean, I can fully understand somebody writing something like that. But he had a drop off in downtown Austin, and he made a wrong turn and found himself surrounded by rioters, by BLM rioters who were stopping cars and essentially uh, trying to force drivers to join them in the protest, or basically accusing drivers of trying to run them over if they were yeah. just trying to get to work or get home. And one of the rioters, 28-year-old Garrett Foster, he was there. He had an AK-47. He pointed the AK-47 at Perry and told him to get out of the car. Perry then shot Foster because he had a he credibly believed that his life was at risk. Yep. He called the police, turned himself in, and a year later, a grand jury indicted him um, for murder. And um, and so he recently stood trial. He was convicted of murder and for simply defending himself. Um, 
And there, know, are photo- and it's- there are photographs, by the way. There are photographs from that night, multiple photographs of Foster walking around. He has like a bandana over his face. He's got like a vest on. He's LARPing full Civil War. And yes, with the gun. And there is a photo from that moment where they're surrounding his car. Foster is pointing his rifle through the window. Like, that is incontrovertible. The Wikipedia article claims, oh, witnesses dispute the account that he pointed the gun, pointed the gun at Perry, but the photos... Well, and they were arguing himself. that he didn't have a... Because he didn't have a bullet in the chamber, because uh, then the, he wasn't actually threatening Perry's life, but if someone points a gun at you, you don't know if that gun's loaded, you don't know if it's ready to fire. Yep. You have to assume that it is. You have to assume they're trying to kill you. You can't wait for them to, you know, give you commands or whatever and see if they're going to pull the trigger or not. So... Uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, I believe Texas has a stand your ground law, in which yes. um, you are allowed to defend your life in a situation like that. But shortly after the jury convicted, and of course, the, you know, when this when this conviction was handed down, it was pretty obvious that uh, th- this is. I've actually had people tell me that they no longer support the trial by jury system because in point? the current yeah. climate we're in, the current political climate, you cannot get a fair trial in certain areas. If you're in Washington D.C. and you are a Republican and you stand trial, you're simply not going to get a fair trial because every single jury member is going to be a Democrat, especially say if you're involved in a protest, in a right-wing protest, and you're arrested for any reason, you are going to be put away because those people hate your guts, and especially in a situation like January 6th where most of the, pretty much every single person in the jury pool knows someone who works at the Capitol or knows someone who claims to be victimized by the pro-Trump protesters. You, you are not going – and even if they don't, they are completely propagandized by the local DC media that hates mm-hmm. conservatives, hates them with a passion. If you don't, if you doubt me, go to DC sometime and turn on the radio and listen to the local news. The spin is insane. You think MSNBC and CNN are biased? They are nothing compared to the local DC media. The local DC media hates Trump people with a passion, and it's going to be the same way in Austin. It's going to be the same way in parts of LA, San Francisco, yep. any liberal city. These people hate Trump supporters. They hate any right wingers. And again, it's like they are on a religious crusade to make it for democracy, for civil rights, what have you. So in a situation like this, it, it is a repeat of Kenosha. You have a someone who is simply minding their own business and they're being attacked. They respond with force. They respond with lethal force, defending their life. They believe their life in this case, his life very well may have been in danger. He believed it was. And he's convicted because this is about sending a message that if you come into our liberal city and you defend your rights, we will send you to prison for the rest of your life. But thankfully, Austin is in a red state with a Republican governor who announced on Twitter that he would request the Texas State Board of Pardons and Paroles to submit a pardon recommendation for Sergeant Perry and that he would ask the board to expedite Perry's case. So thankfully, it appears that Governor Abbott will pardon Sergeant Perry and justice will be served. But it it serves also as a warning to conservatives. You don't need to live in places like this. If you live in a county that is overwhelmingly Democrat, you are playing with fire if you try to defend yourself. But uh, but this is uh, thankfully this is a white pill. This is an example of a Republican actually doing his job and standing up and not just saying, "Oh well, we have a trial by jury. The, the the justice system has spoken. He had a fair trial. He was convicted of murder. I don't have anything to do with this," which is what a lot of Republicans would have done in this in these circumstances. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very good news because, yeah, this does unfold very much like the Rittenhouse case where, again, he had a jury and a judge, certainly the judge who was not taking any of the prosecution's crap and was calling them out on it. And the, the jury saw all that. So this is yeah, this happened again. The fact that, as you pointed out, he turned himself in. He went through the process. 
they let him they let him off. It's like, okay, this is self defense. A year later, the the DA, the local DA, probably another Soros funded DA, as a lot of them in these big cities are, and the jury decides to indict him purely for political reasons because now Biden's in power and they feel empowered. Then, like you said, this would be the downfall of the trial by jury system. It's always got a flaw. There's there's always been flaws in the idea of a trial by jury. Like you said, the tainting of the jury pool. We saw it with O.J. Simpson trial, right? Like there were a ton of black jurors on the trial. So the defense, you know, Johnny Cochran appealed to black identity. One of the jurors literally raised a black power fist as they read the not guilty verdict, proving that it was a race thing. They just acquitted him because he was black. And you saw other examples, you know, for example, Michael Sussman. Remember that the FBI lawyer who uh, was the first guy charged by John Durham's special counsel investigation and is the origins of the Trump-Russia uh, collusion hoax. And he was ultimately charged with account of lying to the FBI. Sussman himself admitted that he lied to the FBI. He confessed. And what happens? A D.C. jury acquits him. Because as it was noted, I think um, one of the... Uh, uh, Jonathan Turley on Fox News actually noted that one of the there were multiple jurors on the jury. It was confirmed who knew Michael Sussman. One of them was a woman whose daughter is on the same sports team as Sussman's daughter because everybody in D.C. It's so incestuous. Everyone knows each other. So, of course, someone like that is not going to vote to convict. I'm not going to vote to convict. He's a friend. Our daughters are friends. So, of course, he gets off scot-free and the media ran away. There's like, oh, he was found not guilty. This proves that there is no case for Durham and the Trump Russia nonsense. And you look at now with Trump's indictment, and obviously one thing they're talking about is his legal team is going to demand that they uh, move to a different uh, location. They have the trial somewhere else because he's not going to get a fair trial in Manhattan. He's in Manhattan, deep blue. They obviously they used to love Trump until he became a Republican. Now they don't like him and they could literally find him. The evidence could be clear that he is not guilty. Michael Cohen is just a lying piece of crap. And there's no proof whatsoever. The statute of limitations has expired. The statute of limitations has expired they'd still find him guilty anyway just because they don't like him because he's Donald Trump. So, yeah, I think that's an important thing that needs to be talked about. Jury intimidation as well. Hello? I mean, you had the uh, the written. People talked about how Rittenhouse was acquitted, but then around the same time, you had the jury, the trial in the uh, the Ahmed Aubrey case. The two guys who, uh, they, you know, Ahmed Aubrey gets into a fight with these guys, tries to take their shotgun away from them, so at which point they have no choice but to, to kill him because he's going to try to use the gun on them. They convicted both of those guys and a bystander who filmed it. The guy who filmed it, he didn't get involved, nothing. They convicted him of murder because, oh, you didn't help him. Like, so bystanders can be convicted now. So who, the, who's the black woman who filmed the George Floyd video, right? Where she, when is she going to get convicted of murder? Because she didn't do yeah, anything. That was the biggest miscarriage of justice uh, probably in the history, at least in recent history of the United States. And it shows, and this is the thing, judges are much, uh, some countries they have a tribunal, so in, mm -hmm. I know in France, it, in the French system, it's uh, I know France and Belgium and other countries that kind of base their uh, legal system off them, like Romania. They have more of a tribunal system where you have uh, judges that decide major criminal cases or a mixture. Some you know, like you'll have three judges and nine members of the public. So it's not just members of the public deciding someone's fate for the rest of their lives, whether their their entire life is going to be ruined or not. So in a situation like that, judges are going to be a lot less likely to be intimidated by a mob than your average ordinary sure. system who works mm -hmm. at Wal a citizen who works at Walgreens because if their name gets out to the public they're going to be unhirable yep. whereas a judge is going to continue to receive his salary and going to continue to receive his pension one day uh, regardless of whether or not they're you know everyone knows who it was that was sitting on the jury so yeah the, the there are flaws with the jury system 
the jury system, it's kind of meant for a homogenous society. You have to have everyone be part of the same culture that kind of agrees on the same rules and doesn't have tribal hatred for one another Mm -hmm. for that type of system to work. Exactly. Yeah. And again, that example, the Ahmed Aubrey case, Derek Chauvin, hello, the autopsy literally confirmed George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose. That is fact. Oh, it's convicted of murder anyway, because uh, how could you imagine what would have happened if, you know, after a summer of the country being burned down, they acquit the guy, which was the correct thing to do is to acquit him. But, oh, we can't have another, you know, we can't have more mobs, we can't have more riots. We got to convict him. It's it's such garbage. And really, yeah, that would be a significant revolutionary, genuinely revolutionary change if America shifted away from the trial by jury system at this point, especially if on the chance Trump gets convicted by a garbage Manhattan jury with a garbage judge whose daughter worked for Kamala Harris. That's fact now. Um, Juan Merchan is the name of the judge and his daughter's name is Loren Merchan. They really don't like if you share that fact, by the way, guys, because they say that's threatening a judge's family. She worked for Kamala Harris's campaign. He made donations. The judge made donations to the Biden campaign. So, of course, you think he's going to be fair and determine, oh, yeah, the Trump legal defense team's uh, you know, request to move the trial. No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm being fair, though, guys. You think a jury's going to be fair? You have Alvin Bragg, who campaigned for this seat, just vowing he would go after Trump, funded by Soros. A friend of mine actually uh, posited the theory that, you know, uh, Bragg may have only decided to go after, because, again, this case was not pursued by anybody else, the Federal Elections Commission, uh, Bragg's predecessor, Cyrus Vance Jr., also a hardcore lefty. No one pursued it because it was so weak. It was pointed out, Bragg really suddenly picked up this go after Trump with this particular case mantra after Lori Lightfoot lost her election. She got creamed in her primary. She lost outright, didn't even make it to the top two. So then someone like Bragg looks at it and is like, oh, well, I got to secure my reelection. I, I got to do something that'll make the base love me again. Go after Donald Trump. So purely for political reasons, go after a former president. And convict him, you know, quote unquote, by a jury of his peers. What garbage. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully something changes fast. Because, And again, God bless Governor Abbott for doing this, for agreeing to pardon Sergeant Perry, who is a hero. Let's be clear. He is a hero. Garrett Foster was a villain. He, you messed her, he screwed around and found out the hard way. You know, you can't just go around pointing your guns at people and think you're some kind of a hero. And again, these people, you should not let these people become victims. He's not a victim. All right. He brought that on himself. Sergeant Perry is a hero. And again, in the spirit of God bless Texas, uh, we've got a, a nice little song here to end on. Not the usual, you know, vaporwave synthwave aesthetic. We got a little something much more fitting to end the episode on. Thank you guys so much, as always, for tuning in to this episode of The Right Take. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting all that we do here on The Right Take, Right Take podcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys. I sing an old Blue Yodel song for you. Yes, that's it. All right. Chief of Texas, Chief of Tennessee, Chief of Texas, Chief of Tennessee, Chief of Delmar, that gal that made a red